It's the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach. It's been about two months since the last episode of the Rails podcast. I went on vacation, enjoyed the summer, been working hard on peep code, new screencasts on RSpec and Ajax with Prototype, but ready to go back strong with the Rails podcast. Got some great interviews planned for the fall, albeit RailsConf in Berlin in a couple weeks. But for today, faithful reporter Robert Stevenson was at eRubyCon in Columbus, Ohio, and spoke with Bruce Tate. This is probably a good opportunity to mention that Bruce Tate, Ezra Zegmantowicz, and I contributed to Deploying Rails Applications, a new book from the Pragmatic Programmers, now available as a beta PDF book in print later this fall. Hey, this is Rob Stevenson from the Columbus Ruby Brigade. I'm here at eRubyCon in Columbus, Ohio, and with me today is Bruce Tate, who's uh, giving talks on Active Record and uh, uh, collaboration, and it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. You recently kind of, uh, well, late last year, switched jobs from being an independent to to uh, being part of a company. I wonder if you could tell us about, about your, your new venture. Yeah, I started a bunch of years ago, uh, probably 15, um, 16 years ago at IBM, um, one of the biggest companies. And I kind of gradually got smaller until I got down to zero. And now I guess I'm building back up again, you know. Two years from now, I'll be um, at Microsoft or wherever. But um, the new company is WellGood LLC, and we are building a – a charity donations portal called Changing the Present, and it's tremendously exciting for me to be using technology that I love, working with people that I love, and actually hopefully change the world at the same time. So tell us about Changing the Present. This is a online donations marketplace, and there are a couple of things that are unique about it. First, the technology in the nonprofit sector is about 20 years old. It's There's really some horrible technology out there. And it's a shame because that really impacts how much of the money that you would donate would actually make it through to a nonprofit. If you can be more efficient, then um, more money will get where it needs to go. So we want to make things more efficient. Second, we would like to change the social norms for the way that people think about giving. I had a mom. My mom got um, sick. She actually broke a bone in her neck a couple of uh, months ago. Um, she's okay, but um, we got a lot of flowers, and, and the first couple of sets of flowers were great. And then the next 27 made it to the trash, and that's tremendously wasteful. Or if you think about conferences, most of the gifts that are given wind up in the trash. So if you can harness that, not all the gift revenue, but just the stuff that makes it in the trash, you can really change the world. So. Um, we would like people, instead of giving that seventh pen and pencil set or, or another pet, uh, another pair of fuzzy slippers. I know you've got four or five pink ones. Uh, <laughs> Don't tell. Uh, yeah, but if, if you can just harness that and instead give an hour of a, a cancer researcher's time, uh, preserve an acre of the rainforest, make a blind person see, which turns out you can do with cataract surgery for about 30 bucks. And now, instead of another pair of fuzzy slippers or another backpack for a conference, I'm making somebody see. And that's, that's 
a pretty exciting thing for us. Now, you uh, have written nine books um, per your your bio, and majority of these books have been Java books. Um, Good number. There's even some OS2 back there if you if you go far <laughs> enough. So, In the uh, Amazon Wayback Machine. Um, now, you're uh, well-known in the Java community um, for continually offering up the red pill um, and, and kind of uh, showing the community that uh, Java is not the end-all, be-all. And so did you come into... Uh, well, good. Saying, let's do it in, in Ruby, or or was that a decision that was already made as far as, as, as creating, changing the present as a Ruby on Rails application? I basically came into the well, good situation with a startup that needed what a lot of startups need. We needed to be extraordinarily efficient, and um, we knew that since we were building something that nobody had built before. Um, and, and since we had an idea that we thought was compelling, um, of course, the things in front of your mind are, can I build this uh, before I run out of money? And can I build something compelling? And if I do build something compelling, can somebody else just build the same thing faster and take my idea from me? So I needed to be efficient, and I needed to be able to grow for the long term. And I was building a big, fat database, and I wanted to babysit that with a web-based UI, and Ruby on Rails was the right tool for the job. Um, I, I have nothing against Java. I think it's a fine language for what it was intended to build, and that's um, you know, primarily more middleware and, um, and basically systems. It's based on C, which is a systems language. But... For 10 years, we've been building applications in a systems language, and I don't think that's a good idea. What did um, using Ruby on Rails do as far as the development, and, and, and how did that change the way that you obviously used to build applications in, in Java? Yeah, I, I think that things are changing rapidly and on a whole lot of different levels. The The first level is um, is the idea of, of offshoring and outsourcing. Um, when I started developing applications and when I started consulting, I would always be very conservative with my technology choices. And the reason is that there wasn't a reason not to be. Um, you just wanted to avoid risk and, and you were willing to trade a little bit of time to do it. With offshoring and um, just outsourcing in general, there are people that can and will take your job if you let them. And um, I think that the way to be um, to beat offshoring is to establish better communication with the customer. And the only way that you can do that is to have a rapid feedback loop between the time that you start talking about a new feature and the time where you put something in front of your customer. Ruby on Rails lets us do that. We can have a demo once a week and and you know accumulate, um, gosh, a couple of hours worth of changes where, where our demos take a long time because we've done something real in, in the span of a week. And um, I, I can't do that with... with any lower level language. We, so we are always looking for leverage points. Technology is one. The other thing that Rails lets me do 
is since I can do more work with each line of code, I wind up doing um, I wind, wind up working with fewer developers. And since I wind up working with developers on the top of the food chain, um, I wind up working with still smaller teams. So we are literally doing the work of two or three that other consultancies were projecting as a 15-person job. And we're coming in at, at half the timeline. And that's an exciting thing. Well, let's talk about teams in the, the enterprise. You know, we're at Enterprise Ruby. Everyone is saying the same thing as far as whenever they, they were able to bring in a Rails app um, and, and compete against, uh, you know, more traditional web apps in, written in, in Java and, and C-sharp.net. Um, how... You know, I've been in the enterprise for a long time, and it just isn't that easy to, to go to your manager and say, you know what, um, you know, Struts 1.1 that we've been using now for God knows how long. I'd really like this new project to be in Ruby on Rails because of, you know, ABC. How do you utilize kind of um, your, your – how do you get into an enterprise, um, you know, how do you sneak – Ruby and Rails, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. How do you sneak Ruby and Rails into? And I hate the word that we always have to say sneak, because um, <laughs> it's something that definitely should come through the front door and not the back door. But how do you get Ruby and Rails into an enterprise? Well, I'm I'm actually lucky in that um, as an independent for so long, I've been able to say, um, yeah, this is. Uh, I've been able to make the conversation not about technology, but but about the business, and. If um, if you tell me that this particular project is going to cost X dollars in Java, and I tell you that um, it'll cost half that much with Ruby on Rails, or um, you have to recruit half the programmers, or you can finish two to three times as fast, that's a compelling business reason. And um, when when you're talking about those, those reasons, then it all becomes a question of how much risk are you willing to put up with for that particular reward. And if, if for example, um, you know, as the risk profile for Ruby goes down, you know, as we, we blast past the million download number and, and start approaching two, well, now you're talking about having as many downloads as the flagship Java frameworks. So um, it's, it's a little bit... Um, less of a concern. The other thing that I do is I talk about the team dynamics. And when you can build smaller teams, then um, you can build much more effective teams because um, adding to a team adds exponentially to the cost of developing software. You increase the communication channels, you increase the interface boundaries, you multiply the opportunities for bugs. Um, so smaller teams build better software. We've known that for a very long time. How are you able to I am we talked about this earlier that I'm kind of running a team where I'm at now that is based basically all on offshore developers. Um, the team that I'm on does not have a full-time employee on the team um, as, as far as a developer. How do you see this small team working with places, enterprises, big enterprises that have thrown the, um, you know, their, have thrown their, their, their uh, interest towards 
throwing the money at offshore developers um, as a way because, you know, these, these people are smart um, and they work for a lot less. Yeah, so I think that you've got to make a big distinction between a distributed team and an offshore team. Now, I think the model for offshoring is curiously bringing some development shops closer to a waterfall development process. That's a process where specifications are up front, everything rolls into development, everything rolls into unit tests, system tests, and then out the door. Um, if, if you think about it, you need more specification work done up front of an offshore project. You need rigorous unit and uh, rigorous integration and acceptance testing on the back end of an offshore project. Now, try to tell me the difference between that and waterfall. You really can, right? So I think that if if you're thinking about Ruby on Rails, it really gives you a chance to break that waterfall cycle. You can actually use Ruby on Rails to build smaller teams and to build with less and build it here where you can have that close communication with a customer, where you can shorten the, bit, the feedback loop and you can get code in front of the customer at regular intervals. Now, I'm a little bit of a radical in that I believe that you can do this with a distributed team. I have developers in New York, in Columbus, in Calgary that we've, we've used to build this application. Um, curiously, the guy in Calgary is Clinton Beegin, who is the author of the Java framework called Ibatis. Um, Clinton is a technology agnostic. If he believes that um, Rails is the right, the right uh, technology for a problem, then he's, he's going to work with it. Now, I know that we are paying a penalty by having a distributed team. We're not able to pair program as seamlessly. But if I can go get the best developers in the world, then I think that we could overcome um, any disadvantages that, that we have to proximity. So I always build a, a close, a, a very careful distinction between a distributed team and an offshore team. An offshore, the, the traditional offshoring model is much closer to a waterfall. And, um, I think that the answer, how do, you, how do I do that with Rails? I think the answer is you don't. Let's go back to changing the presence and just uh, present and charity in general. It, recently, the Ruby community has really stepped up, um, and especially with Chad Fowler, where they, uh, at, at RailsConf, they kind of put down the challenge to raise uh, money for charity. Um, this was started with Dave Thomas and Mike Clark, who did started the the guidebooks that would allow people to um, for you know some amount of money donated to charity come to kind of a pre-conference uh, tutorial on Ruby and Rails what is it about the Ruby community that fosters this kind of attitude where you know we're not saying that Java people aren't uh, giving and, and so forth but it really is the Ruby community itself that has stepped up and and every conference, even eRubyCon right here, used changing the present to do a, um, a a charity drive. That that now it seems like the norm for Ruby and Rails conferences. I think it's a fantastic movement, and isn't it interesting that the same people who have given so much time and so much energy to establishing the Rails framework in the first place. 
um, the Dave Thomases, the Mike Clarks, the Chad Fowlers. They've, they've sunk countless hours into establishing Ruby on Rails as a viable open source platform with code contributions, with technical writing, um, which you've got to do out of love. You're never going to make a lot of money um, doing technical writing. Um, but I think it's important that these people are looking not just for ways to give, but ways to give with leverage. The same way that I talk about coding with leverage by using smaller teams and better technologies, we have people with um, with big names, and they they are using those names to um, to attract attention and um, to provoke action on noble causes. And one of the things I'm very excited about doing is actually building a platform that we can use for things like um, those workshop registrations and um, actually the e-commerce engine to drive the giving through that process and, and to do the record keeping and, frankly, to help people promote a noble cause. You gave a, a talk today, um, or I'm sorry, yesterday at e RubyCon here about um, called Stretching Active Record. Um, can you go into your talk and, and give an idea of, of some of the the things you talked about. Yeah, that was an interesting talk to give because I basically walked through a lot of the mistakes that I've made and some of the solutions to those mistakes in two years as, as really a pretty green Ruby developer. I talked about um, the object relational mappers that Java has and all the inheritance modeling that you can do on the Java side and trying to shoehorn um, my Java thought process into the Rails model. And that took me to a sad place. And we don't want to be in a sad place. We want to go to the happy place. So I learned to stretch the way that I think um, about various problems. Like, for example, instead of trying to, to build a whole inheritance model, sometimes I'll use polymorphic associations. So instead of saying, okay, everything on my website is content, well, if I were to follow the Rails inheritance model, then everything would be crammed into a content table, and, and all the subclasses of that would be with different properties. That's, that's clearly an unmanageable solution. One of the things that I can do, though, is break out a small content descriptor that I can then um, add to a class with um, polymorphic associations. The other thing that I can do is realize that I'm not coding in Java anymore. I'm coding in Ruby. And I can make, um, instead of having one big fat content column, well, I can have small pieces of content like nonprofits and causes and gifts on my site. And I can make them all quack and waddle. I can use duck typing. So as long as I um, add the common behaviors in a module and just name, um, name and declare the fields in a similar way, then these things will um, behave as if they were one big inheritance tree. And that works for me pretty well. Um, I also talked about some of the things that I learned earlier on, such as dealing with very large trees. Um, there's a niche design pattern that I used that I haven't codified yet as an active or as an access plugin, but it's using materialized address. So instead of doing a nested set, which is great for dealing with um, with 
categories and things that don't change. The problem with a nested set is when um, categories do change, you have to number, renumber the whole set. With the, with the concept of a materialized address, well, I can label something um, like I label the Internet, 1.4.7.16, um, which is just a materialized list of identifiers, and I can express a tree that way um, with, with some pretty surprising results. Let's get into um, kind of more of the Java side that, that most people would, would recognize your name with and the kind of excitement that has fairly recently come around with JRuby. Um, you have a lot of, of Ruby luminaries getting very excited because this seems like a great open door into the enterprise. Um, Whereas, you know, something that can be easily uh, brought in, whereas maybe something Rails would be a little more difficult to do. How uh, do you see JRuby helping uh, Ruby and, and, and Rails uh, breaking into the enterprise? It's, it's very interesting that um, when, when you see something like JRuby as it's under development, you've got a use case in your mind, maybe a couple of use cases. And and from Java to Ruby, I wrote about some things that look absolutely fascinating to me, like using middleware in Java, like rules engines, and expressing scripts in a scripting language, like Ruby. So wouldn't it be great um, if if you could put um, real, um, natural, domain-specific languages into Java rules engines to make some business rules that look like business rules. One of the most exciting experiences of moving to Ruby on Rails was putting some active record code and actually some access state machine code in front of business users with no programming background and doing code reviews with people without a coding background and um, actually finding bugs and getting work done that way. It was tremendously exciting. Um, but to look at that um, in the context of, of a business rule looked like it would be very interesting. Now, that was a couple of – that was about a year ago that I wrote from Java to Ruby. And now everything has changed. JRuby is out, and the first commercial application or broadly um, deployed commercial application with JRuby is using uh, Rails with a Java Swing client. Now that just sounds like science, complete science fiction to me. But um, you know, there it is. Uh, you have probably what has a very real possibility of becoming the de facto tool for managing agile projects, running as a Java front end to a Rails backend on JRuby, with a little bit of Ajax mixed in and a lot of ingenuity. Um, so. I guess that's that's a long-winded answer to say I have no earthly idea what's going to happen. I just know that JRuby is going to make it possible to do natural scripting things in a scripting language. If you think about it, a whole lot of what we do is scripting. Integration, um, writing unit tests, that's a natural scripting exercise. Building web pages. We know that JSPs are badly flawed and broken. And we know that the Ruby... Um, Pages are um, are working very well with Rails, and we're actually seeing some um, some new languages that express HTML better than HTML um, does itself, um, and that's exciting in its own right. 
And I think that those things have a natural home on J-Ruby. J but we just have no idea where it's going to go. We'll just have to watch this this crazy um, ballet play out before us and, and um, just enjoy the ride. Do you think the excitement for J-Ruby comes more from the Ruby side or more from the Java side? It, I, it seems that as far as the Ruby side, there's, you know, we have we have Rails, which is allows you to, to you know build your web applications, and the need to tie into a Java backend seems only something that's needed in the enterprise, which Rails has not really embraced because the, you know, the majority of people that write Rails apps uh, are not in the enterprise and, and don't have any need for that. I don't know. I think that. Um Gosh, I, what if I'm a Rails aficionado and I want to build this Rails application, only this database is Ingress. <laughs> there's a JDBC driver for um, out there. Uh, there's a JDBC driver for everything. And wouldn't it be great to um, to use that JDBC driver and, and get some of the inherent um, enterprise integration? Wouldn't it be nice to put um, Ruby integration code right around some robust uh, messaging applications? It'd be nice to use some of the uh, Java e-commerce um, and security um, implementa implementation. So there are a lot of APIs that Ruby developers could definitely use. But um, I think that I tend to agree with you for the most part that um, – that this could really give new life to the Java platform. And when, you, when we look at Java 30 years from now, we're either going to say it's effectively dead, dead like COBOL, not like Elvis, right? Or that the legacy of Java is the Java platform, the JVM. And I think that that's, uh, th that is an argument that you would have thought was dead um, three years ago, five years ago, but now it's very much alive with JRuby and um, heck, other languages, also uh, additional languages that are more dynamic that are targeting the JVM. Well, the site is changingthepresent.org, and you can follow Bruce on his blog at blog.rapidred.com. And I'd like to thank Bruce very much for uh, sitting down with me for an interview. Thank you very much for having me. All right.